What is up, guys? We're back with the second episode of the week, number two of three going down this week. Uh, coming up Thursday, Thursday night, my man Malcolm Banks of Yellow Mountain Gardens is going to be on the podcast to talk about his experience and running his farm and all kinds of cool things. I'm super stoked to have him. He's an awesome dude. But tonight uh, I did my first Skype interview with an awesome dude, uh, Matt Ball. He's a nurse practitioner and founder of the Humane Clinic, which is in Adelaide, Australia. You heard that right. We've gone international. Uh, Matt's an awesome dude. We connected. uh, We have a mutual friend who connected us to talk about the work that he's doing with the Humane Clinic, a big event that he's putting on called Reawaken Australia, and then another project that he's got going on titled Psychosis 365. Uh, awesome dude, super knowledgeable. Um, I learned a lot from him in just this short, like hour long, um, conversation that we had via Skype. And I like, I think he's going to be like a regular guest on the podcast. Cause I, I really like, I enjoyed talking with him and I need to pick his brain some more. Um, so like, yeah, it, we did it. It was a lot of fun. He's an awesome dude. Hope you enjoy the program. Give some love to my good friend, Mr. Matt Ball. Living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life. Is going through different intervals, finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional. And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional. I am incredible, the unconventional. And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Matt Ball, welcome to NC Raw. Hey, Steve. Good to be here. Yeah, man. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Oh, All, thanks. Albeit with these uh, the circumstances, um, I'm talking to you live from Adelaide. Yep, Adelaide, South Australia. Yep, Adelaide, South Australia. Um, not only is this my first Skype interview on NC Raw, but this is my first international interview. <laughs> right. Um, and like, so this is our, actually, this is our 50th episode, the 50th time that we've sat down and talked to somebody, um, about recovery, health, wellness, all those things. And, um, I was 
kind of like reflecting today and some of these interviews, like some of these people, cause I, I'm very like thoughtful in my scheduling and like the way that I book guests and who I book and how I book them. And like, sometimes I will schedule somebody and there'll be like one or two email exchanges go back and forth. And then the date comes and they show up. And then sometimes there's like this long running chain of back and forth, like conversations um, and that's kind of what happened with me and you to the point where like, I totally dropped the ball and miscalculated <laughs> once, um, the time difference, mm. not only miscalculated, but I miscalculated by a whopping 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I was a whole 24 hours off. Um, I asked, I asked my little Google home hub thing. I, I was yeah. asking it the conversions and it told me like we were trying to do it at like six or seven o'clock at night, my time, which was like nine or 10 a.m. your time. Yeah. And I didn't calculate that. It was like different days. So like my little Google told me like 6 p.m. my time was 9 a.m. your time. And I didn't realize that it was the following day. So yeah. um, thanks for coming on, man. Like we have a mutual friend, Oryx mm -hmm. Cohen, who kind of introduced us and yeah. um he uh, he was like, you got to talk to Matt. Like, I just met him kind of like randomly. He attended a, a recovery rally in our little town, believe it or not. Right. Um, and I asked him to come on the podcast and um, had a great conversation with him. And he got home and he was all excited and he started emailing me. And like, you were the first name that he sent. He was like, you got to talk to Matt and right. kind of looked at what you're doing. And I was like, man, this guy really, the work that you're doing, um, the approach that you use really aligns with a lot of the, the things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And so I guess to start it off, I would like to know just kind of like what it is that you do through the humane clinic and kind of like how you got to this point um, in your life where you were like doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Big, big stories. I think, um, and first, maybe I'll give a shout out to Oryx, you know. Um, Absolutely. I'll tell you a story, quick, quick story about Oryx and me. And um, we met through the film Healing Voices. We screened it here and it's made a big difference. And I guess we'll talk a bit more about that later. But he was in New Zealand doing something and we wanted to put on an event to try and develop an alternative for the uh, emergency department for people in mental distress. And he was in New Zealand. And I was telling him we're going to screen the film. And he just said, hey, do you want me to hop over? Now, I think probably people think Australia and New Zealand's quite close, but it's six and a half hours flying, you know, and this is, yeah, this is the kind of recovery community, I guess. And this is the, the good people we have in our, in our connections, you know, Oryx just hopped over from New Zealand and presented a day and then hopped straight back to New Zealand, you know, and, um, now how did you yeah, guys, so, how did you guys first meet? Well, we, we screened healing voices. We heard okay. about healing voices. Um, you just, and it came across your radar, healing voices, and you kind of like reached out or? I don't know. I just saw an advert on Facebook and I just went, oh, I like that. So I just emailed Oryx and PJ, um, you know, the producer up there and said, um, yeah, we want to screen it. We'll pay the license. And we, we, we had a venue and um, it was a little church hall and we thought maybe 30 people would turn up and about 130 to 150 turned up. There was no seats left. People were standing the whole way through the film. And um, that became, you know, that became a bit of a movement. We then... That night, someone said to me, hey, Matt, do you reckon we could put on a Healing Voices festival? So we got a 500-seat cinema uh, theatre and we put on some dancing of a girl with a girl who hears voices. She danced her voices and 
someone was in a band, so they played a band. We screened the film a couple of times. We had art showing. Um, and then we went to an international film f- uh, music festival, WOMAD, uh, which was in Adelaide. And we put on a Healing Voices stall at WOMAD. Wow. Um, and it, it was a little collective got together, the Many Voices Collective, who was a bunch of people who had lived experience and were professionals working in the system. So there was this pretty pretty beautiful mix of six of us. And we just we just did all these things. And then then a year later, Oryx was in New Zealand and this crew were, were working towards a project. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I'm in New Zealand. You want me to hop over and come and do a talk? And yeah. So, so we, and then now, of course, we're working, PJ, Oryx, me and Stephanie at Humane Clinic are working on Reawake in Australia together. And they're mm-hmm. coming over. Um, and he's also going to do some uh, emotional CPR, CPR training while he's yeah. here. Yeah. He talked about so that on the podcast with me, the emotional CPR. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful, you know, because it's, it's, it's really created a kind of sense of, you know, as far away as you guys are in the States, there's something really important about knowing that we've got friends close, we've got friends further away, we've got collaborators in different places, you know. Yeah. And definitely like like 24-7, like at any time, like with this time difference, yeah. it can be a convenience almost in some yeah. circumstances. So, yeah, that's right. So what is the Humane Clinic? Oh, the Humane Clinic is, um, well, I was working in the public mental health system for 15 or 16 years, something I believed in and still do. But um, I guess there's restrictions in, in public services. And um, although they'd given me permission to roll out hearing voices approaches in the public system, and that had been a journey, I've been teaching staff and working with individuals and families and communities. Um, I guess I wanted to see what it was like to be a bit freer. And, uh, you know, the, I think the word that gets talked about me in the public system by some people is that I'm radical. Um, I, I used to I used to kind of dumb that down and say, hey, don't talk about me being radical. But then I read what the origin of the word radical means, and it turns out radical means to get to the origin. Yeah. So I was thinking, oh yeah, cool, I'll claim radical. That's me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so then I sort of came up with Humane Clinic. I, it's an acronym, and it you know the values are based in the word of humane. And um, yeah, the idea was to get a bunch of peer workers, therapists trainers whoever wanted to together and um and see whether we could start to provide a kind of umbrella of alternative so people had a second choice other than the public system and what that looked like we didn't know anyway i eventually left the public system last year and went and stephanie who's my business partner who's a therapist she has a lived experience she's a former peer worker she kind of said hey matt is there any chance i could go into business with you um so we went into business together and that the Humane Clinic is really just that. It's, you know, it, it sounds a bit um, cliched, but I suppose one of our things is if someone comes up with an idea, maybe we just say yes first, and then we work out how we do it afterwards. And that has its problems and dilemmas, but it's also, you know, it's pretty similar to recovery, I'd say. You Absolutely. Know, I'm going to find a way through this. I don't know how, but I am. It's like it's almost like teaching those resiliency and coping skills like right out of the gate. Right, like by yeah. by kind of being open to whatever the individual is willing to or looking for, you're you're it's like truly meeting them where they are, is what people always say. Yeah. Is this peer approach something that's fairly new in Australia or were you guys kinda like Yeah. 
Were no, you... no, it's not new. There's there's peer workers in the public system. There's some private peer workers and care workers, consultants. But I think um, I think it's a, a it's a dilemma, Steve. You know, I'm a clinical professional. Stephanie's a clinical professional. But you know, within our clinical space, in ourselves, I can't. You know, what I learned living through the system of mental health and my own distresses and my own what was called psychosis and um, by one psychiatrist diagnosed as schizophrenia, you know, I, I think I, I think about that every day in the context of my work, you know, because it was the relationships, it was the people, it was the, um, I mean, I, I often talk about this. I lived in a community for people that were seen to be pretty unwell and not really responding very well to the treatments of medication and ECT and incarceration. And um, what I always feel was that I, I, I went there mad and I became unmad there. And I became unmad in the context of living with a whole bunch of people that the world thought were mad. Mm -hmm. And so there was something that I discovered in there that if, 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 if you're all liminal and you're all a bit mad, distressed, psychotic, overwhelmed, Whatever your dilemma, if if you all just live together, then you don't feel very mad anymore. It's only the other people that say and label you as having a problem. The outsiders looking in. That's right. And so there's a theory around liminality, and, and liminality tells us that when people become betwixt and between or outside of those dominant spaces, they become creative. Um, they become ritualistic. And I suppose what I experienced in there was a bunch of people who just said, well, let's just spend time together, you know. And it was in that space that I realized that particularly psychosis and interest area of mine, particularly psychosis, that when when the threats are gone, when the interrelationship is real and genuine, then maybe psychos psychosis doesn't need to exist for us anymore. Mm -hmm. And and that's a beautiful freeing space, you know. If, any, if you've ever been psychotic or – well, it doesn't really matter. I think it's the same with addiction, you know, I think – if you've been feeling that sense of compelled or overwhelmed to use substances or, or have addiction of any form, in those moments you feel like it just happens, it takes over us. And I think it's about finding places where we realize, wow, I've, you know, I'm okay who I am mm -hmm. and I can be who I am. So I don't need to find myself being lost in psychosis, addiction, depression, whatever. It's like creating that sense of community of those individuals around you kind of like fosters that healing and that acceptance for your experience. Yeah. And, and, and then that becomes your internal experience, you know, so mm -hmm. that fractured self or that, that maybe the community within you that's got these different pulls and needs, which ends up as addiction, mental health, whatever. Um, maybe they all feel like they can come back together just like the community mm -hmm. can. Um, and, and I think there's a big healing. So humane clinic sort of values and the peer aspect of that is that we're not peer workers. That would be wrong to say, but we seem to attract people with lived experience to want to hang out there and volunteer there, work there, access whatever we offer there. Um, and so we've, we've got a working committee on Reawaken that we're setting up, and it just so happens that about 85 90% of them have a lived experience and we didn't ask can we have a bunch of lived experience people we just said oh if anyone knows anyone who wants to get involved with setting up an event and it came together like that so i think that's that's that community space that we've got they naturally kind of like gravitated to your type of approach 
because probably of, based off of their lived experience and also like probably like wanting to be of service and be able to like give that back to to others who who may need it at that time yeah uh, and yes and they're you know in some senses i guess the the whole bunch of us there are probably people that we we might have been told that we we didn't have the skills or didn't have the potential or you know somehow had had some sort of deficits but actually you know that's um that's just wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> so so what we found is there's a bunch of people there who are very skillful in a whole range of places and we're going to put on an event including oryx and pj and others but um yeah it's been pretty special and i, I remember ron coleman saying once uh, at an event i was at he said um we really mustn't limit people's potential mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the one of the reasons why the the sort of dominant medical paradigm really uh sits uncomfortably with me is because essentially what we're saying is that somebody else knows about our potential our qualities our ability to not be burdened by distress anymore and i i don't believe that anybody knows that about any of us yeah it's like it's something to do with like somewhere inside of us whether it's through like a learned behavior but we set these expectations for like what life is supposed to be both like from the professionals and then on ourselves and like a yeah. huge part of that process is like letting go of those expectations and allow us to evolve into the person that who we are or evolve to achieve our full potential um, yeah. like so much so much of those so many of those limitations are like set on ourselves and then you have whoever it be professionals or some somebody else in your life telling you that yeah those are your limitations that you're you know that's it for you yeah and it's it's yeah. just kind of like i don't know i'm real i'm real big on like momentum and like creating momentum and so you have all these factors um contributing to like what would be kind of perceived as like a barrier or like slowing down that momentum of growth and when you can kind of like see it and then overcome it and then begin to like creating, create that, what I would call positive momentum or momentum in the right direction. And then having those peers, that community kind of supporting you and allowing that momentum to kind of gravitate and grow on its own. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. It, it is beautiful. And I, and I think you're right that it, it is so often peers in whatever form that looks like who've, who've, who've got that underlying belief in others, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think it can be professionals and clinicians as well. You know, oh, yeah, there's yeah. some amazing, amazing people out there who just seem to be able to connect in with that. Mm -hmm. But my, my question is always, you know, what's their story? What's their journey behind yeah. that? You know, uh -huh. they might not identify as lived experience, peer worker, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they, they know the human experience, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I guess part of Humane Clinic is inviting people, professionals or not, to, to kind of think about what it would be like to to get in touch with yourself before you think about trying to um, trying to evaluate, uh, support, um, tell somebody else something about them. Mm -hmm. um, Stephanie, my business partner, she always says, "You know, our job, Matt, as therapists, is to get out the way." Yeah. You know, so we're in this relationship, but how do we keep ourselves out the way of somebody else doing what they need to do? You know, and I. I think that that kind of fits pretty well. Yeah, very cool. You talked a little bit about your personal story and mm. about the the growth that you experienced personally 
um, mm. by being in that type of environment with other folks who are dealing with similar situations to yourself. Um, in what, in what, at what part of your personal transformation did you begin to get involved or study or look into um, Buddhism and spiritual practice? And like, what role did that play in your in your recovery or your your transcending into like this this well being that you that you live today? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I remember well. I I um, maybe I'll give a bit of context. I I grew up in a Christian Methodist environment, um, which wasn't for me, but it did give me an underpinning of spirituality of some form. Um, and then, you know, I was always pretty absent and different to the rest of people around me I felt uh, tried to fit in but and then I ended up in the mental health system and came out and when I was about 21 I was living in this 22 I was living in this community and I came out of there lived in a housing association property and then I'd always surfed when I was a kid and when I was in hospital one day um, this friend of mine Alex he came to hospital and he took me out of hospital I was really overweight I was on four antipsychotics, I was, you know, seemed to be really unwell. And he took me on a day's leave from hospital and he took me surfing, which no one knew about. So we went surfing and I looked like a big um, seal, you know, like in a big <laughs> wetsuit. And um, and we went surfing and he said to me, you know, when we get out of hospital, we're going to go on a surf trip. And so sure enough, when we got out of hospital, he, we went to Morocco surfing and um, I got back from there and I was like, oh, you know, this is something I can connect to. This is something that's important, valuable to me. So I moved to the coast where I could surf. And when I moved there, I met this person called Ali, who, who's a dear friend of our family now. She's a nurse. And um, I told her I was thinking about going on a retreat just because I wanted to explore more about who I was. And she got me a book from, um, from like a charity shop, an op shop, that was an introduction to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And I went home that day. It was 80 pages, just 80 pages. And I read it. And I just, I was reading this book and it was like, Oh, I already know this. I don't know this, but I, it makes so much sense to me. You know, I already know this. And so that, that was about a year after leaving the psychiatric, uh, the, 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 the community. And I was still on some psychiatric drugs, but it, it took me into going to Vipassana 10 day retreats. And, um, yeah, it became like another level, I suppose, in terms of, okay, I've done the psychotherapy thing. I've, I've, perhaps tried to come into connection with some of the adversities or traumas and I've, I've managed to see myself the same as all the other people in distress rather than thinking I was somehow different, you know, which was a big part of the trip, I think. And, and so then meditation just seemed to offer something else. Like, and I remember thinking to myself, this is how it impacted. I remember thinking when I got back from Vipassana, my goal in life is to become as conscious of everything as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And it sort of resonated because I think as a kid, I felt like I was too conscious of my thoughts anyway. So I was kind of stressed out and overwhelmed. And here was this framework, this, this philosophy that said, actually, this is a, this is a route to freedom from suffering. You know, this is a pathway. And so I went to lots of retreats and I stayed in monasteries and I thought about ordaining as a monk at one point, um, went to a monastery to see if I was going to ordain and decided not to, but it, it just became, it became something that um, meant that my whole journey wasn't about mental illness and drugs and distress. It, it made sense with my early childhood and my adulthood, you know, and brought them together, I think. 
-hmm. And so, of course, it informs my work. You know, I really, one of my most interested parts is the idea of right understanding, one of the Buddhist concepts in the Eightfold Path, um, the Noble Path. And, you know, I think that in our work in recovery, work with ourselves, with others, getting to a, a good right understanding of what we're experiencing, not necessarily where it came from or what it was, but what we're experiencing, I think this is a really important part of us feeling the opportunity to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sits there. But yeah, I have a, uh, a very similar experience with um, Buddhism and spiritual practice um, myself, and it's a huge part of my recovery story. Um, mm. And like I discovered um, meditation. Have you heard of Refuge Recovery? Yeah. I discovered refuge recovery, like, um, in my, in the process of like getting into checking into treatment, uh, after being like released from jail and kind of like really like looking at my life, didn't really relate to like the typical 12 step model at the time in my life. And I had the very same type of thing. I, I discovered a documentary about the founder of refuge recovery um, and watching it and learning about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, it just made sense. Like, I understood it. Um, and so I took it and I ran with it and I began meditating every day. I began became very active in the Refuge Recovery Fellowship. Um, and then I began sharing that with others and, and connecting with other like-minded folks. And, like, especially, like, here in, like, Bible Belt uh, Appalachian, North Carolina, you know, it was a little, there was, it was, wasn't as easy to find individuals who were interested in this type of pathway. And now we're, we're having meditation, two meditation groups per week on this campus and we're doing different things in the community. Um, and like, I don't know that, I don't know that I could say that another fellowship would have done what this has done for me in my life. I probably could have stayed sober but I don't know that I would experience the freedom that I do today. Um, Just like the entire eightfold path. You mentioned right understanding, but just like every, every aspect of it um, not only applies to my life, but I, like you talked about being aware or being mindful of your experiences. Like I, I see those every day in my life. I see them every day in my daily life. How am I going to respond in this situation? How am I going to, what is the, the yeah. most compassionate way to approach this situation to cause the least amount of harm for myself and for everybody involved? And it just like, yeah. I don't know, it just it just happens. So, um, yeah, and, and and you know, Steve, what I hear in that from, that resonates with me is even when I feel like I've done something that I, in that moment I sort of think, oh no, I wouldn't have wanted to behave like that. That that ability to kind of go well that's also a learning opportunity. That's also yes. part of the awareness that, you know, that's okay. You know, that the suffering comes when I beat myself up and go into shame and guilt and overwhelm, you know, because on our journeys, you know, you mentioned prison. I ended up in a detention center, immigration detention center. I certainly took actions that I wouldn't be taking at this point in my life, you know, including in relationships in, you know, and I, it's easy to it's easy to to feel pretty dreadful about that, but to be able to observe that feeling of dreadfulness is is very powerful for me, you know. And so when it when it does when it doesn't go as planned, it's okay to kind of take that and learn from it. It's and, totally um, and, okay. Yeah, 
I have, yeah. I have the, moments the every day. In my work, Steve, is where because I had a relationship with Christianity that was not my thing and I feel caused me some harm, to be honest. And um, But I think being comfortable with my own sense of spirituality and beliefs, I feel much more interested and desiring of asking people about their other their own spiritual journeys in recovery and that that can include christianity mm-hmm. and any any religion faith spiritual experience atheism whatever but i do think that that's one of the great gifts of my interest in buddhism is that it's le- it's made me feel less frightened of other spirituality to have just to have that conversation yeah absolutely i ask everyone everyone you know what is what is the what is meaning in this life to you you know what what does it feel like and that, of course, as we all know, has so many different narratives in people's minds. Mm-hmm. In the early days, I was somewhat resentful towards the um, towards the church and towards like that the other pathway. So I was very closed minded. You know, like mm. it took a number of years and a lot of um, a lot of the heart practices, the meta practices, and the forgiveness yeah. to like really become accepting. And then we started doing this podcast like a year ago. Um, and like I began to have these intimate conversations with people from our community who have walked these different paths and who have come from these different spiritual perspectives. And every single week, it's an eye-opening experience to like what works for them. And it allows me to like kind of take some of those tools that they're using and then apply them to my life as well, even if it's might not align with my um, my way of thinking or my belief system, I can still see the value in it. Whereas in the beginning, yeah. I couldn't. In the beginning, I was completely shut off to anything outside of what worked for me. Yeah, and it kind of has it has gradually shifted um, drastically yeah. in the last like year or so. It really has. Um, so how you do know, you go ahead? Well, it just reminded me when you were talking. You know that. I was visited by a chaplain when I was in hospital. I mean, I was in hospital on and off for 15, 16 months, I think. Um, and, you know, I was in and out, but not very much out of hospital. And, and this chaplain came to see me. And he was a friend of my stepdad who was also a minister in the Methodist Church who, you know, in, the, in more recent years, when I, when I got into Buddhism, I said to my stepdad, he's a Christian minister, I said, you know, I, didn't, I never wanted to be religious. And he said, give it five years in Buddhism. See how it feels, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and it was such a gift to me to hear someone from the Christian faith say to me, "Yeah, follow your path, you know, follow your heart." And and but this chaplain in hospital did the same, you know. He used to take me off the ward to the chaplain's room. He didn't talk to me about God. He, he just offered love and compassion and sharing and time. And so, yeah, it's it's important those those healing parts of the mm-hmm. journey, isn't it? And it so and, is. Yeah, but I was going to say one of the things that we've noticed on the Humane Clinic around this is that there's two things that seem to, or well, three things, but two things that seem to people seem to talk to me about when they've wed, come to see me because they've been on the website. One is the Buddhist aspect, mm-hmm. and I think that's about them wanting an alternative. The other is my relationship with uh, people who knew R.D. Lang. Okay. So people explicitly come to me and say, oh, "I read on your website that you're into Lang." And that, you know, that's why I've come to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and same with Buddhism. Wow. So it's it's interesting. Did you work with him, or what's that relationship? I, did, I missed that. No, I 
I didn't work with him. No, he he passed away. But I when I started training in therapy in two thousand and one two, um, I was told I had to have a supervisor, and um, I had I got told I'll go and see this woman. She's called Mary Duhigg. She's she's passed away now, but and I went to see her, and she was about my grandma's age, and um, she told us how she lived in one of Lang's houses, mm. and she told us the story about how she was a nun and she was a bit naughty, so she kind of kept leaving the convent to go and hang out with Lang and his buddies. And then eventually she went and lived in one of his houses and she then trained with Lang. And so I would go to her house and it was very much in that Langian kind of frame. And yeah. then Leon Redler was there a couple of times and Denise Blagden, her, her, her friend and colleague, was there. And so I just got introduced to the Langian way and I was in supervision for seven or eight years through this and just exposed to that um, very permissive, and free and crossover between who are you what's it like to exist versus you're distressed how do you want to work through that mm-hmm. and that was my that i would say that was my therapy training really yeah. <laughs> was to hang out in those spaces dude yeah. that's amazing though man that's amazing <laughs> it was awesome <laughs> and like kind of like that experience that you described um when the uh, chaplain came and talked to you and was like open to your perspective, like that's kind of sound. And the way he, he responded to you at that time and kind of met you where you are and all that, that sounds exactly like what you guys are doing at the Humane Clinic. Like you're kind of providing that same sort of support, like open to the individual's experience and open to allowing them to kind of like define it how they want it and kind of like approach it in the way that they want is that is that kind of correct yeah i think so i mean i think there's always restraints isn't there that you're trying to run a service or offer a service of something but absolutely you know we we offer a stephanie and i have started offering a free open dialogue informed service um which is essentially a one-off network open dialogue network meeting for people and we thought it would be for people in psychotic crisis but actually what's happened is and we're okay with this it seems to be people who've been in and out of the mental health system for five or ten years, and they're starting to kind of, as a as a network, as a as a family, say, we keep getting told this is working, but we're not feeling any better. We're still distressed. We're still overwhelmed. The family, the network, you know, everybody's still, the person in their family is still mad or addicted or whatever, and the net, the rest of the network is still sort of seeing that as the problem, and so that seems to be the people that are coming to us, which is fine. But that's an example of how we've kind of gone, okay, we thought this would be psychotic crisis, but actually it's um, people five or 10 or 20 years down the line who are going, I've heard there might be alternatives. And we're saying, oh, well, let's have an open dialogue meeting mm-hmm. about what the dilemmas are and where you want to go. And that that's one example. I think, yeah, I, I think silly things like, we're happy to go and meet people at home. Uh, I remember reading an article years ago about how if you want to use psychotherapy as a facilitate psychotherapy with people who are uh, particularly distressed in psychosis and have labels of schizophrenia and other things, maybe you need to go and meet them where they are first. And then eventually you can do whatever traditional therapy you want to do. So it sounds so simple, but starting therapy in people's front rooms until they're ready to move to anywhere else, you know, um, going to the beach, finding a quiet place on the beach and doing therapy is a 
a crazily powerful experience, as in people say, wow, you know, this is so different because the wind takes away all the stories. So I can tell you and you can hear, but we, it's not stuck in this medical environment because the, the, the earth and the wind takes the stories away. Mm -hmm. So we both know the story, but we're not bound by the story. Um, doing graffiti in the sand on the beachfront yeah. so that, you know, people can write and say what they want because the ocean's going to come away and lap it away. You know? So just, just, and then whatever anyone wants, but just being available, you know, what stops us? I don't really know what stops us other than the kind of rules and the systems and the structures and I suppose the power imbalances. But what else stops us from saying to people, oh, you've come to see me. What, what did you want? How can I, how did you imagine I might be when you came to see me? Because I can try and be like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's, I suppose, I've never really thought it through like this, so I'm thinking it through while I'm talking to you. But, you know, that's, I mean, a good example, I did write this down. A good example would be, you know, in the mental health system, if you start talking about how schizophrenia doesn't exist as a valid medical construct, right? It, it is a construct. It's a social construct, and it, it is what it is. But we, we can't say people have a biological disease of schizophrenia, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. But if you say that in the public mental health system, that comes with significant yeah. uh, problems. Mm -hmm. you know? So, But what, what if you say to people, there is one theory which is a biological disease. There is another theory which is about trauma. There's another theory which is about spiritual emergence. There's another theory which is about liminality and not fitting in and and then you might have your own theories you know so what which ones do you want to work with? which ones do you want to explore which which parts of that narrative make any sense to you mm -hmm. and and you can change as well you know if you decide it's this and then one day you decide it's that well if that's your recovery then that's that's where you've got to go no, you're the one that defines it it's completely fluid throughout that process and it's allowed to change yeah, yeah. but it becomes with you know, as as professionals, I think it comes with comes with dilemmas because, you know, I mean, I'm mindful. We're having this conversation; it'll go out online, and I can see that to some people, essentially, I suppose what I'm saying is that I'm not interested in giving people labels of disorders. Yeah, and I would I would agree with you personally myself. Like that, that's part of the dilemma. That's part of why I do this podcast. Mm. In in all honesty, is that I started the program two years ago, and like what I was learning in the classroom, what they were teaching us, because I'm so active in the recovery communities in my personal life, it didn't align. Like yeah. what they were teaching us and what they were the what they were what we were learning every single day and what I was seeing out there, it didn't align. And I began to question like, well, where do I fit if I don't if I don't kind of if I'm having this type of dilemmas about these approaches yeah. that they're teaching me in the classroom, where will I fit in professionally? Right. If I'm, yeah. if I'm having this internal kind of struggle, where am I going to yeah. fit in? And that's what kind of like led me to start the podcast was that I at least need to do, have a hobby to like get this out. <laughs> right. And to like vent yeah. a little bit and to talk to other folks and just to like, just to have fun, really to have fun. And yeah. it's like evolved into something so much more, but that, that was a huge part of it. And the fact yeah. that like, I do see the value, especially, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea about the healthcare system in Australia, but here in the States, like that, you know, 
getting a diagnosis is a huge part of like funding and who's paying and all that, all those things. And it plays a vital role in the the business side of mental health. Um, and so like, but like it also, there's barriers that, that come with that diagnosis. There are barriers that are in place that prevent the authentic type of, of work that you guys are doing at the same time. And like, what is the balance, you know? And that's, that's kind of what I was struggling with is like, how do you find that balance and what is the, what is the line and how can we, how can we come together and kind of meet in the middle and still do what needs to be done to um, cover the financial side of things while providing the best quality care that we can for the individualized care for that person. Yeah. 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 Look, I, I agree. And I think there's a, you know, Australia's system is broadly similar to the American. Okay. Uh, well, there's some differences, but the principle is the same. You know, you have a, di- a DSM um, category or an ICD category, but um, the, the the primary care, the GP access to psychologists, is based on the same principle. You know, um, and but and I I guess what you know we have this amazing knowledge. And wisdom in Australia as the First Nation people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I live on the lands of the Ghana people and have had the privilege of working in uh, the Aboriginal Family Clinic here. And one of the things I've seen is, which personifies the dilemma for me, is that people's culturally safe meaning is sometimes said to be schizophrenic or psychotic. You know, and that's not. That's not even about funding then. That's just really offensive to me mm-hmm. uh, as a concept, you know. And I think if we, if we take that further, how do, how do we, my questions, and it's a fantasy, of course, but my questions are how do we move to an environment where we say, you know, people are inherently skillful. People's recovery is where they're going to go, given the right support that they choose, they feel. And at that point, will it really be any more expensive? You know, will it really cost more if, if if you treat someone with antipsychotics for 25, 35 years, schizophrenia, they have 25 hospital admissions, they have 45 shots of ECT, you know, we're not, we, they have community care follow up throughout all this. That's not a cheap budget. You know, no, so, yeah. so what if we, you know, that's a lot of money. If you look at the, the antipsychotics that are prescribed, that are licensed and under patent, if people are on two of those. It's costing thirty thousand dollars a year for their prescription of a drug for which we we can't actually say has good evidence for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, some people find value in it, some people don't. And comes but with side it, effects. And people's lives end early, so then we put mm-hmm. them in hospital because they're they've got metabolic syndrome, they're late detected cancers, they're you know there's all these dilemmas, and and then there's probably fertility issues around it because a lot of the drugs have impact on fertility and and what have you, and so. You know, if we were really bold and we really wanted to change, we'd start saying, could it be any more expensive than it is? And I think we'd say no. So then we may as well go to some of the alternatives. You know, you look at Lauren Mosh's work in Soteria or Lang's work, you know, radical in one sense, but pretty cost effective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crudely speaking, um, the Hearing Voices movement has mobilized this incredible network of people around the world. Yes. But for what is essentially not very much money. So I think there is alternatives and um, the potential. But the other thing I think, and this is me banging on, but the other thing is the Mental Health Act. And I'm not sure what yours is like in, in America, but 
I wrote an article recently in a nurses, mental health nurses magazine, and, and I suppose what I was saying was that the Mental Health Act is predicated broadly, not completely, but broadly on the idea that there's an underlying mental illness. The mental illness paradigm is flawed as a legitimate disease concept. And then there has to be evidence-based treatments, but it's hard to provide evidence-based treatments for a concept that's hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. And so we take people's rights away and we enforce treatment based on this act that can't really, that isn't really safe. And I think that's another driver here. You know, we, we, we hesitate to move away from some of the mythology and stigma that says mental health is frightening and dangerous and problematic. Drugs is frightening and dangerous and problematic. And move, move into a space where we say people are, people are, are, are good at heart. And so what we need to do is support people to connect with that. Mm-hmm. Investing, that in, investing in people. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about Psychosis 365 and like how that thing, how that baby came to life and what, what exactly it is that you guys are doing. Yeah, well, Psychosis 365 was one of our um, well-intentioned but probably stupid things to, things to do where we, I was having, having coffee with Stephanie and um, I said, oh, you know what, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, there's this conversation about whether schizophrenia exists or not, what it is, what it is, what it's not. There's, there's the medical paradigm, there's the recovery paradigm. And um, what if we got 365 days worth of everyday people telling us what they thought psychosis was? And we just did it for one minute, and it was a free resource that anyone can use forever. So we started recording, recording people. Um, I'm going to ask you for a recording. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> and and then we just post them every day to Facebook. And it will just be a year-long project where, where there's a free resource of professionals, people with a lived experience, um, policymakers. We've got some Buddhist nuns giving us some feedback. Um, just whoever wants to comment, really. Okay. And that can be... Um, anybody who's like tuning in or happens to come across this podcast, they can like connect with you guys right through the website. You got a link for Thre- Psychosis 365 and yeah, you send yeah, a little, Facebook, send a minute uh, video um, to you and it goes up on your Facebook page. And how many, right. how many we'll guys, let you know when it's going up and when's yeah. it starting? How many guys got, how many have you collected? We've got 110 videos. Wow. And we started on the 1st of January, so we'll run for the whole of 2019, every day for 2019. That's amazing, man. That That's beautiful. <laughs> that's badass, dude. I don't think, I think it's an, I think it's an awesome idea. And I think it's going to, it's a huge resource um, that yeah. that needs to be distributed. I, I really do. Yeah. Um, because and I like, think it's, I think it's fun, fun, you know, I think not, not because people's distress is fun, but, but let's, let's enjoy discovering new ideas. Mm-hmm. You know? That's how new ideas are created is like through yeah. that type of collaboration and like you're utilizing, we kind of, we're talking a little bit before we started recording tonight, but utilizing this like amazing thing of technology that we have, you're doing just yeah. that um, by, by, by using these tools that we've been given to share this information to where ideas can be, can be created and we can start looking at things a little bit different. Um, the work. And, and you know, you know, Steve. You know, one of the things about psychosis two six five that's fascinated us is that people have an opinion on this, right? So we don't hear from these people. We we hear from the medical the medical profession and people who are seem to be unwell. But 
we went to a restaurant to give a talk one night for a, a nursing body and the waitress really really wanted to give us a video for psychosis risks <laughs> she never worked in mental health the other day we were at the beach having our morning meeting in the sea we, we're really lucky it's hot at the moment so we have our business meetings in the ocean sometimes yeah. and we get out of the sea and there's this young guy cleaning his shoes and he starts talking to us and he's 16 years old and he's just a really nice skater guy guy and he and i said to him oh, do you know what psychosis is and he starts giving us a description and we said oh do you want to do a video and he just gave us this beautiful video and he said you know yeah i, yeah, I have voices in my head he said sometimes i'm gonna skate along and i'm gonna have a voice saying yeah you can make that jump you can make that jump and other times i have voices in my head saying no nah, nah, mate don't do it never gonna do it mm -hmm. And he said, so that's what I make of voices and visions. <laughs> that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. I'm totally going to check this out and uh, send, you guys, <laughs> send you guys a video for sure. I can, I can definitely cool. relate to that, man. Definitely stoked about that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, what you're doing with um, the trainings and stuff like that. Like I saw the mindfulness, self-compassion training that you guys offer. And you offer all kinds of other like educational type opportunities through the humane clinic and i kind of wanted to get like a, a rundown on like what that's like and who might teach the classes and just a, a general like bit of information um i yeah, think that so I, the the mindful self-compassion is steph's thing she went and did the teacher training for that mm -hmm. with uh the, the christian student enough model i think um so she she facilitates that that's for anyone we we, we very much encourage that there's no one who's right to come to training or wrong to come to training you know it doesn't it might be a member of the community it might be someone in mental distress it might be a professional it might be whoever um i got this idea years ago when i was working and living in england i went to a workshop that was on homelessness and it was in a monastery uh, run by some therapists and they um, they um they the monastery also housed homeless people sometimes so whenever they put trainings on there, these therapists, they offered any of the homeless people there the opportunity to come and join them and join the professionals. And it was it was really funny. And that one night, um, I was asked if I could take one of the homeless guys back to where I lived. I lived five hours away. And it was a really funny moment where I'd been in training all day. And I, in all honesty, I didn't really want to have to drive someone five hours that I'd never met before. But it was a really great, really great leveler of, oh, yeah. This is what we've been here talking about, how we've got shared realities, you know. Uh -huh. um, so, so that was where we got the idea. But so we do, we do some hearing voices training on hearing voices and psychosis. Um, really, as a we use the hearing voices networks approach, but we also incorporate our own kind of model, the model of this uh, the human to human relationship model, which comes from a nursing model. And essentially, what we're saying is that psychosis and things in our view often, often happens in the dilemma of human relationship mm -hmm. so how do we learn to support a person not to need psychosis anymore when when they've experienced trauma adversity uh spiritual isolation uh those sort of dilemmas so we do some four-day workshops like that um, um we run some humane clinic forums which are just an opportunity you know 10 bucks each to get a bunch of people together to come and discuss a subject, you know, um, as an accessible thing. Um, and tomorrow, actually, we're because we've got Reawaken, Reawaken Australia coming up, which is this four or five day um, fest, uh, 
con- conference that's seeking to bring together substance misuse, so addiction, mental health, and trauma. Um, and so the sponsors of that, we're offering a free day's training to the sponsors on humane approaches to psychosis. So we're going to have a kind of experiential day where hopefully everyone will start to see their own psychotic <laughs> potential and how that gets in the way of them al- allowing another person to be who they are. Yeah. So yeah. this big event coming up, you call it, you kind of like hinted at a conference. Is it like a festival, a, a mental health festival? Well, like, we didn't call it a festival because we, we were told that might put people off, but uh, uh-huh. um, look, it, it, it is a conference and it's for four and a half, five days, but there'll be some pretty intentional. We're not, we're having keynote workshops rather than keynote speak, speakers. Everything is going to be in a workshop format so that the idea is that whatever anyone does at the event, there's a meaningful action that they can take from it. So we want to bring together community for connection. But we also want to say, don't come to a conference for four or five days and then go away and wonder how to do it. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's find out how we can do different things while we're there and we can take it back into our communities. A practical um, application of the skills that you're learning while you're there. That's right, because I think a lot, of, a lot of conferences are beautiful and brilliant, but I wonder how we adapt it back mm-hmm. to our workplace. Yeah. You still surfing? Oh, like, I do try and surf, but I have three beautiful kids, and uh-huh. um, yeah, they take up a lot of my time, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so I teach them to surf a bit now, and um, but I do love the ocean. It's an important part of my what um what uh, do you do you do any like fishing or any anything else diving spear spear fishing anything no i'm a i'm a vegetarian man okay all right all right a true buddhist <laughs> no, I, I i i'm like like i always think i'm um one of those probably quite annoying dads that thinks too much rather than just does things and um so i've started teaching my kids to fish but as i as i don't know how to fish Hard to teach them. It turns out they've taught me to fish. <laughs> okay. You know? And um, so I do go fishing occasionally with my kids. And, uh, you know, we spend a bit of time on the beach. And um, we're really be- lucky where we live. It's sort of semi-rural. And it's just stunning and beautiful around here. So being outside, being amongst nature and being, being by the ocean is um, it's a pretty good lifestyle. Yeah, for recovery. Yeah, yeah for and sure. Peace and just well-being. peace, well-being, all of the above. I grew up in South. Yeah. I grew up in South Florida, um, very, ah. very close to the beach. Grew up surfing since I was like five years old. When right. I when I found recovery, I moved to the mountains, and now I live on top of a mountain, <laughs> couple neighbors, nice and quiet, you know. Um, so I've had kind of like the best of both worlds, but super envious of what you guys got going on out there. Uh, well, yeah, listen, right. man, how can uh, how can people connect? Before we wrap up, man, how can people connect with you and kind of if they want to get involved and learn more about what you guys are doing um, with yeah. the Humane Clinic, the, get involved with Psychosis 365, book a trip to reawaken? Like, how can people get involved? How can people connect with you? Well, probably the best way is to go to our website, www.humaneclinic.com.au. So that's H U M A N E clinic, clinic.com.au. And Send us a message on there. That's probably the easiest way. But have a look around. I mean, there's also our Facebook, and which is facebook.com forward slash Humane Clinic, I think, or um, www.reawakenaustralia.com.au. Um, but look, we, 
we just got an email today from someone in Victoria saying, hey, I love what, I love what you guys are doing over there. How can we connect up? So I, I think that's what recovery is about for a lot of us, right? Yes. It's about how we can connect with good people and hear, hear our, our stories and other people's stories of joy and peace and well-being. So, yeah, send us an email. Send us a Facebook message, like our Facebook, whatever. Um, but we'd, we'd, we'd love to have more of our American friends over at Reawaken Australia. Um, there's still some spaces and there's some discounted spaces if people are, I know you, it's a long way, but there's some discounted spaces if people are vulnerably waged. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, come and, come and hang out. And we always love learning about what other people are doing. So if you, if you do contact, contact us, tell us what you're up to as well. For sure, man. Well, listen, man. I uh, would love to do this again with you. I think we should do this kind of regularly. If you're if you're down, yeah. I'm down. I want to kind of continue this conversation with you, um, and yeah. share the awesome work that you're doing. Like, I think what what you guys are doing is exactly like, um, exactly what many of these communities here in the states need. Um, I think that yeah. this type of approach, there's a, a an enormous opportunity here to kind of like yeah. apply exactly what you guys are doing. Um, this kind of like peer support, you know, um, compassionate, kind care. I think that's, that's where it's at, man. That is where it's at. So, um, I'm great. I'm grateful to have, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And and we're going to be, it looks like we're going to be in America next year. Okay. So Oryx and PJ have decided, you know, on the, on the back of their new film, recovering addiction, which is coming out next year. And, um, I think we're going to do reawaken America next year. Okay. So, um, it'll be in Boston, but, uh, Hey, I want to get down to North Carolina and come to your studio. <laughs> yeah, dude, definitely. Anytime. And like, seriously, man, if y'all are in Boston, man, I'll come up there and we'll just do a podcast together. Me, you and Oryx, we'll get together and just yeah. hang out for, you know, a couple of days or something. If you, if you're doing that, I'm coming to Boston, but you're welcome right. to, you're welcome to visit the mountains, man. It's beautiful here. Um, it's a tourist destination, but it's also like rural, rural enough where you can get that kind of like peace and tranquility and not like get caught up in the, in the tourist activities. So, um, I'm grateful to know you, Matthew. You're a badass. You're a badass, my friend, you're doing killer work. Um, and I look forward to continuing this relationship with you, brother. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And you know, Steve, I've been saying this on Facebook, but the way you offer this space, it just feels so, so good. You know, so thank you for doing the podcast the way you do it, you know. I appreciate that, man. I really do. So hang tight real quick. I'm just going to wrap the show up and we can say goodbye on our own. All right, dude? All right. All right. Thanks, you guys, for tuning in, man.